0: I'm Kate Daniels. Dr. David Nuremberg is a professor, educational consultant and writer in the Boston area who teaches courses at both the high school and graduate level. Based on his years of instruction, he's written an important book, perhaps more important now than he would have believed, What Does Injustice Have to Do With Me? Engaging Privileged White Students with Social Justice. We actually recorded this conversation more than a month ago prior to the killing of George Floyd, and it was relevant then and so much more so today. So let's meet Dr. Nuremberg to learn more. Dr. David Nuremberg, good morning. It is really so wonderful to have you with us this morning. Thank you so greatly.
1: Well, thank you, Kate. It's really great to be here. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: And you're here because you're doing such great, important work, and we have very little time to cover so much territory. So first of all, thank you for this book, What Does Injustice Have to Do With Me? And uh, I'm sure that there are many people... Who say that and probably are thinking that as we talk, and hopefully what will be discovered is that we find that all of us have a part to play and a very critical part to play in, in race and social justice in our country. Absolutely. So how is it that you first came to decide to write a book about this, David?
1: Oh, boy. <laughs> so um, I've taught for <laughs> I've taught for 20 years at a, a very affluent, largely white, suburban high school. Um, the school is consistently in the top 10 schools as assessed by the state. And honestly, I've loved it. I love my students. They're bright. They have these great ideas. Um, because of their uh, resources, they can actually realize many of these ideas. I've had student musicians who've had recording contracts. I've had student athletes who have earned national rankings, Um These are great kids. Some of them are really idealistic, uh, want to change the world, and I love that, Um, but through no fault of their own, many of them, not all, but many, um, they've been raised in such a bubble that they're surprisingly unaware of a lot of basic structural injustices, particularly where race is concerned. You know, if you're white and you live in an all-white neighborhood and attend an all-white school and you're taught by all-white teachers, it's really easy to think that racism is either a thing of the past or it's still there, but it's Really, kind of someone else's problem. Uh, thank God I won the birth lottery. <laughs> and I'm not from that different a background. I'm a white guy. I was raised in largely all white environments. I went on to teach at a largely white school. And what all that means is I don't have to think about race and the effect of race on me if I don't actively choose to. And maybe the only small pinprick I have in that bubble is that I'm Jewish. And although I would never claim that my experiences of marginalization are on the same level as, say, uh, if I were African American, uh, the fact remains that there are certain things I can't avoid thinking about. Like, I can't avoid thinking about my religion during the winter holiday season. <laughs> um, you know, are so many messages that being Christian is a fundamental part of being a real American, right? So, you know, that's That's something I have to think about in a way that I don't have to think about my race. And it wasn't until I met other white anti-racist educators, that I really started seeing my position in society through the lens of privilege to view racism as something that's so baked into the social structure that it's not just about overt acts of cruelty. And through those experiences, I was able to reach out to anti-racist educators of color or even just friends of color and slowly, hesitantly, with a lot of mistakes, and I'm still making a lot of mistakes – getting into critical race theory and kind of forming my present understanding of things. Um, and I want to be clear, I'm very much still a work in progress. I've got decades of cluelessness to make up for, <laughs> but in terms of writing this book in particular, I think the, the seminal event that sent me on the path, and I talk about this early on in the book, is um, one of my top student writers wrote his final essay in my English class, and honestly, quite passionately, with a lot of rhetorical flair. Um, around the thesis that I shouldn't have made his class read Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech because it was outdated and irrelevant to him and his classmates. And while my first reaction was kind of to pick my jaw off the floor, um, I learned by then that that we teachers need to listen to our students. And here was the student telling me that he felt disengaged with discussions of racial justice because he felt they had nothing to do with him. And that essay really crystallized for me a bunch of other observations that I've had over the years. white students who've kind of given pushback when we read books about authors of color or written by authors of color. I had a ninth grader once complain, not another book about poor black people in the South. And I realized there was a learning gap here. Um, It really is a learning gap. Um, And I recognize it because I had and still in some ways have that myself. In so many ways, these kids have had such a good education in terms of basic skills, you know they've had their, their early grades um, with excellent instruction. They've had parents and tutors and camps, and they arrive in in ninth grade. You know when I start teaching high school, more than ready to pass state tests. I, I could read out of the phone book to these kids if they'd still pass, but if we applied some sort of I hate this word but wokeness metric, we'd be a failing school. And I wonder how we can in good conscience send these kids out into the world into the positions of prestige and leadership that that so many of them do wind up taking on. With such a limited understanding of the diverse country in which we live and the challenges and the inequities that are still a part of America. And if we don't include this as an element of their education, I'm worried we're risking yet another generation of leaders who play to stereotypes and, and continue the current system of privilege. But there's really nothing written about how to do this kind of work with white right, privileged students. There are so many books written about. Um, strategies and resources for teachers uh, to be effective in largely urban uh, majority minority communities. There's really nothing out there for teachers who are in situations like mine, like those of my colleagues. And that's why I decided to write the book.
0: And it is still very new. And uh, actually, it's launching here in May, so there's not been a chance, an opportunity for teachers to be able to get this and begin to incorporate it, but really the book is, is filled with stories and with guidance and and exercises, if you will, uh, opportunities to engage students, right? Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I'm clear in the book that this is this is challenging. I think this is as hard in its own way as helping a student learn to read who hasn't had the foundational experience of literacy. You know, we, we talk a lot about these intractable problems of poverty that impede student learning, and those are very real. There are also intractable problems or tractable seeming problems of affluence and privilege that impede student learning. And you can't you can't approach this by hitting kids over the head with this stuff. Because if they face it head-on, they'll either resist or shut down or alternatively get consumed with feelings of guilt and hopelessness, and none of those outcomes are useful. So as a teacher, you've got to find these ways to start small, to get your students comfortable with being uncomfortable. And you as a teacher have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, especially if you're a white teacher and, like me, you haven't been raised to really you know, look through a lens like this. Melody Hobson has this wonderful uh, TED Talk when she talks about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, Students, these are these are kids. They're adolescents, and they can get overwhelmed very easily. And you know, again, at minimum, if they do, they shut down. And if they shut down, they're not learning. Um, And unlike the case with math or English, social justice isn't on any state test. There's no external pressure to learn it. And you don't want to upset the kids' parents either. You know, my research I found that this isn't just You know, the case in my experience teaching, this is the case at suburban and independent schools all over the country. Administrators are very careful to keep uh, influential parents happy. And it's the rare administrator who's going to really back up a teacher um, when the parent's upset. And the parent may have every right to be upset, right? You know, you as a teacher shouldn't be indoctrinating their children. What you want them to do is think critically, to question what seems normal and self-evident and engage in perspective taking and engage in metacognition and self-reflection. Uh, and that's all very complicated work. It's it's not easy. And the tools that I uh, suggest, they're tools that are certainly backed by research. They're backed by my experience and the experiences of the other educators whom I interviewed. But there's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all approach to anything in teaching. And so um, I try to be clear throughout the book that you as a teacher are going to know your kids best. You're going to know your communities best. So everything here really has to be adapted to the, the particular situations and particular folks that you're working with.
0: And I feel that part of the education is going to begin, needs to begin with actually the teachers themselves because while you had this aha moment and, and you're passionate about it and it's an important passion, I'm sure you find that your colleagues aren't necessarily on the same page, which is probably the case with teachers ac- across the country.
1: I think it depends on the teacher. I've got some colleagues who are <laughs> ahead of ahead of me in this, definitely, and I've got some colleagues who are, you know, really new to this. Um, but our job as teachers is to learn, and good teachers we're always learning. We're always trying to build our skill set. We're always going to professional development, and so I'm hoping that you know teachers who are interested in this view it as just another skill set to learn. It is a skill set. There are you know concrete strategies, there are authors to read, there are lessons to look at and adapt. So this isn't beyond any of us. If if someone as dense as me can learn how to do this, it's really not beyond anyone to learn. It just really has to be approached uh, as another dimension of your craft that you've got to master.
0: I'm totally in agreement with that. And it's in that whole league of, you know, we're into lifelong learning and, and needing exactly. to expand ourselves. And, and, and hopefully the desire is to make the world a better place.
1: I think people go into teaching because of that. <laughs> Certainly not for the money or the easy work hours, right? Right. We, we go into this field because we want to make a difference, and, and here's a way.
0: And it's such, this particularly such important work because we find it – here in the greater Seattle area, with the city of Seattle, it's always holding these uh, ongoing trainings uh, along the lines of race and social justice and having, you know, the city staff, which is a huge number of people, needing to become more aware of it. So we're doing this at the, you know, into... Our old, you know, next generations of life. So to begin this with our youth and make them aware, hopefully we're going to m- meet at some point and and have a, a a city, a country that embraces these values and and has this uh, acceptance and understanding of each other.
1: That's the hope. I mean, certainly Boston, as anyone knows, wrestles a lot with structural racism. I think we actually got named the most racist city in the country uh by a couple publications about a year or two ago um you know anyone who's old enough to remember the the busing nightmare in boston in the 70s you know we we're still wrestling with this ourselves and that's really you know part of the reason why as counterintuitive as it might seem i really want us to to spend some time focusing on the education of of the most privileged and most well resourced of communities and their their children because like it or not, you know the reins of leadership in America are still disproportionately held by rich white folks. I mean, it's changing slowly, but that's still the case right now. Right? Our, our current Congress is the most diverse one in our nation's history, and it's 70% white. <laughs> you know, 90% of Fortune 500 CEOs are white. And short of some major nationwide revolution, and as much as I love Bernie Sanders, I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, any fundamental shifts towards equity rely on at least some of these very privileged folks developing new and different understandings of what social justice means and what role they can play in it and even how it might actually benefit them. You know, people don't do things necessarily solely out of altruism. You know, maybe we have some folks who do that, but most of us do things because they benefit us. And part of the argument to making the book is that, you know, uh, white folks like me suffer from this system too. It's a very different kind of suffering, but there is a way in which these very affluent school environments are are hurting their students. And so I think if, if people really kind of wrap their heads around that, or at least entertain that notion, then it becomes, "Hi, huh, here's a strategy that's really designed to help all of us, and we're all going to benefit from this if we pull it off.
0: And and that is uh, what I feel we need to all be embracing. This feels really almost too simplistic, but I, I think in terms of, you know, we are only... As strong as the weakest link, and and I think that's true if if we really look at it. Not that many or all people would regard it in that way, but unless all of us are finding um, our purpose being lived in the world, uh, then then we're failing.
1: Yeah, and and that weakest link can exist in. Suburban affluent environments or independent school environments as well. I think it is existing. You know, mental illness, particularly depression, and anxiety, it's been on the rise for almost two decades um, with adolescents. We've had a 20% increase since the mid-2000s, and there are a lot of explanations for that. But what I find really interesting is that the trend's been most pronounced among affluent kids. Right? Well, should these kids be the most secure of all? You know, financially they are. In terms of health outcomes, you know, physical health they are. But there's something particular to their environment that's eroding their sense of self-efficacy and purpose. I've had so many students who who just lack resilience. And I wonder if that's perhaps because they've had so many supports, they've been shielded from so many consequences of their actions. They haven't had the opportunity to really develop resilience and see how they can fail and pick themselves up again and learn from their errors and do better. Um, it's not their fault, I think, with the best of intentions. They've got you know parents rushing in to to intervene. Uh, to try and mitigate consequences, but I think as a result, you know, the slightest setback throws these kids into a Chelsea. You know, I've had students earn a C-plus and contemplate suicide. I'm not exaggerating this. And and this is a trend that's unfortunately reflected across America. You know, you have students who, who really, you know, take a, a setback, like getting dumped by their boyfriend or girlfriend or getting harassed by in social media, something that really parents and teachers can't shield them from. And it's like it's like Jenga. Everything comes crashing down. And to me, that speaks of a problem in the environment. I think one of the things we don't tend to talk about when it comes to privilege is that privilege in some ways keeps us from being as resilient as we can be. It keeps us from having to become resourceful in the face of external pressures. Um, it's it's a system where you've got affluent schools kind of falling over themselves to, to scale back and give more no homework days and more mental health days while we're fighting in underprivileged schools to get rigorous cur- curriculum and, and high expectations. It's like the system's serving no one. But I think it's a little less immediately obvious how the system may not be serving folks in the, the, the wealthy, affluent, largely white parts of our country. So I, I think we're all the weakest link if we realize that um, we've got some common purpose and, and we can see what injustice does have to do with us if it's not self-evident.
0: And I feel that you really present a, a very strong, important, solid case here. And you're probably still getting some pushback. Do you feel that?
1: Yeah, um, and I guess you know I, I can take that as a compliment. You know, if you're getting pushback, it means people are paying attention. Ah, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this is this is a difficult thing to talk about. You know, it's it certainly still makes me uncomfortable. I'm not sure it will ever not make me uncomfortable. And add to that that we live in this very polarized era where every idea gets put into kind of one partisan box or another. I mean, even if you're wearing a mask or not right now during the COVID crisis, you know, that gets tagged somehow as a sign of your political alignment. Um, And, you know, what I really try and if I can get into discussions with folks and and I try, number one, just to listen. And then, you know, if I have the opportunity to, to chat with them, I'll say, look, you know, Number one, I don't think social justice is exclusively a property of, of the left or the right. I think people on the left and the right might define it differently. They might have different plans for addressing inequities. But I think except for, you know, really far ideologues, you unfortunately get a lot of media airtime. Um, I think everyone believes that that all students deserve a fair shot at success, that the color of your skin or the neighborhood you live in shouldn't define and limit your destiny. Um, You know, George Romney, Republican governor of Michigan, you know, was one of the biggest opponents of redlining. I think until the early 90s, every African-American elected to the Senate was a Republican. So I I don't see this necessarily as a red blue divide, although certainly uh, there are folks who, who put it that way. But I think, you know, even beyond political labels, this is about critical thinking. You know, the Common Core requires that students develop analytical skills and perspective taking and communication in diverse context and engaging students in meaningful explorations of social justice, you know, demands the development of all those skills. So this is really, you know, a part of our regular job as teachers. Doing this can help students develop all of the skills they want them to develop and apply them to real-life contexts. And so much research says that's really the only way we learn something deeply. So I, I'm, I'm hoping that those conversations when they go well <laughs> will lead to sort of a you know, we're actually all on the same side and we actually are, are progressing towards the goals that we all have in common. Um so those are the the good days. Um and I've been fortunate that I've had a lot of support at my school um in particular, but I also listen and acknowledge um folks who say there's no way I can do all the stuff in my classroom. You know, I'll get fired, I'll get pilloried." And to them, I say, look, you know, adapt what you can. Um, Do what's possible for you to do. Um, It's not an all or nothing. And recognize that it's one more part of teaching that's really hard. This is a hard profession. Um, This is one more hard thing that, you know, we really have to do.
0: And I'll add to that, the results as we embrace that can be just, well, plain uh, life-changing for all of us.
1: Absolutely. I mean, certainly, it's changed in my life, and I have seen students. And this is, you know, this is not to self-aggrandize. This is really to praise them because they're the ones who do the work. I have seen students, you know, who engage with this and really find themselves transformed by it. I share an anecdote in my book of a student who had really been suffering um, from depression. She had um, uh, received a concussion and a sports injury and couldn't play the sports that she loved. It was really kind of disconnecting from school. Um, And the student who was white, um, through an assignment in my class, managed to get involved with a local chapter of the Black Lives Matter movement, and this was shortly after um, all the protests in Ferguson and Baltimore, and so she joined the Black Lives Matter protest in Boston as a part of this uh, project. And again, I didn't require that. Students really had a lot of wide latitude in how they were going to apply these critical thinking and research skills to an act of activism, and some of my students were, you know, identified as conservatives and applied it to, you know, conservative causes, but she decided to attend a Black Lives Matter protest, and she had planned just to be an observer and write about it, and uh, in her journal, she describes this kind of wild thing happening when um, there was a a tense moment when the police were sort of moving threateningly towards the crowd, and one of the organizers um, called out in the megaphone, white allies to the front, (laughs) and... The student of mine found herself sort of linking arms with all of these white folks in a circle, (laughs) forming a barrier between the police and the marchers of color, and the police backed off. And, you know, first of all, I can't think of a better example of allyship. You know, we're not talking about being the white savior. We're not talking about stepping in and fixing things. We're talking about partnering with and taking the lead from, if necessary, marginalized people. And if we have white privilege, using it, you know, to, to open doors for them. And here my students had kind of opened that door, had kept that space open uh, for the March organizers. And she came back so incredibly excited. I had never seen her so self-confident. I had never seen her so engaged. You know, so of things that she was learning had meaning to her beyond just getting that grade. And so many students in affluent schools, you know, they're so cynical about the system and they have every right to be. You know, they, they get these narratives that school is all about getting the good grade, to get into a good college, to get a good job, to buy a big house, and then, I don't know, grow old and die. <laughs> and, and, and who finds inspiration from that? I mean, no wonder there's so much depression and anxiety. And so, you know, I'm not saying, you know, every student, you know, needs to become an activist to find meaning, but it's one way. And actually, I'll, I'll change that. I think School's purpose is to help students become activists, not necessarily in the political sense, but in the sense that an activist is somebody who takes action in her life, who uses what she's learned to make some kind of change in the world around her. And whether that's construed as, you know, quote, political change, unquote, or just a change in your family or your workplace, that's what we want students to graduate with, I think, anyway.
0: Yes, and she obviously had that feeling of fulfillment of of really having done something with purpose. That's that's just a brilliant example.
1: Yeah, the the work was all hers, and the work will continue to be hers because, of course, you have these peak moments, and then you've got an awful lot of of defeats and agony and you know frustrations and setbacks. And so, I think the the real test is, you know. Have you develop the resiliency to to keep that up and to let those women sustain you and that's challenging for me and it's challenging for all of us who care about these things but that's also part of the skill set that you know in my book i, I try and help teachers um, engender or, or grow in their students
0: and we should mention the book is freshly new and of course, we're in kind of a challenging time that we can't necessarily walk to the bookstore, But um, and I always keep liking to tout individual uh, standalone bookstores, because uh, here in the Seattle area, they are shipping, so uh, people can just request the book because uh, they're not going to be able to go in there and prove the shelves, but ask for it by name, right, David?
1: Absolutely. Ask for it by name. Um I don't know if you can put the ISBN number on your show's website, um, but the, the title is, What Does Injustice Have to Do With Me? Engaging Privileged White Students with Social Justice. I'm a huge fan of uh, independent booksellers, so please, I would encourage anyone interested in reading to uh, go to their bookseller and see if they can order it. It uh, can get shipped to you, uh, help keep Amazon delivery folks in business uh, without denying uh, independent bookstores their ability to survive as well.
0: Rightly so. And actually, I think on your website, you can even pre-order the book,
1: correct? That is correct. Um, if you go to www.drnurnberg.com, um, you can find a link for pre-order right there.
0: And doctor spelled out.
1: That's correct. And Nuremberg is N-U-R-E-N as in Nancy, B as in Bob, E-R-G as in Gus.
0: <laughs> Great. Now, on the website, too, lots of... Interesting and fascinating information. Very educational, which makes complete sense, with podcasts. And also you've done a TED Talk, which is really so captivating.
1: Thank you. So all of that's... I'm trying and I'm still learning.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and see, isn't that... You're you're modeling well. Working at it, continuing to learn, right?
1: I certainly have a long way to go, and I would never equate um, my struggles with folks who are much more marginalized than I am, and really, you know, this hasn't been an option, a choice for them. It's not necessarily something that, you know, if you're from a marginalized group, you get regular praise for, so I I really appreciate the praise, but at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm coming late to the game trying to work my way out of a position where I'm part of the problem, and so, you know, really, I would I would forward that praise onto the people who have been doing this work for, for decades and centuries, and I just want to do my best to help them out.
0: And it's also a, a wake-up call, because, yes, this is uh, really talking to teachers, talking about education, but we are all in this, regardless of where we are on that spectrum, needing to learn, uh, and, and even if we've been engaged in some of the work along the way. There's uh, still so much more to be done, and maybe we'll experience new moments of being able to create change in the world. I'd like that. And I think that that's what you're giving us, David, is that opportunity to to consider that and, and work on it ourselves.
1: Thank you. If the book does that, I'll consider it successful.
0: <laughs> right. And it's still too soon to tell, but we're going to be... Um, positive thinking about that, that that is going to to be the next step, right?
1: Thank you. I, I like thinking positively. <laughs> if, I, if I didn't think positively, i think it out of bed.
0: <laughs> so, you know, here we are too during this pandemic time. It's not really helping matters, but maybe we look at it also as somehow an opportunity to, to do this work and, and to reach the students, particularly, who need our time and attention
1: absolutely you know this is one of the many times when the inequities in our society are are so blatant that even folks who are cocooned in privilege like I, I would you know include myself in that really can't look away or shouldn't anyway you know the the disparities when it comes to healthcare in terms of race and economics and educational access and a remote learning environment you know it, it's I see these issues being talked about front and center in the media as they should be. So I think, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe this is an opportunity to say, okay, we really have to face this and and work together to do something about it. Um, I don't think anything would justify COVID-19, but at least that would be perhaps a silver lining.
0: Yes, you're right. But at least it's here. What are we going to do about it? And how can we look for that silver lining and make it work for us, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's been just truly such a, an honor to speak with you. I am so grateful to you for the work that you're doing, for taking time with us this morning and, uh, you know, reaching out to uh, kind of nudge our hearts, get us to open up and see that agent of change that we can be in the world as well.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's really been an honor.
0: Thank you.